0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And this week I am joined by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Kyle? Doing good, doing good. Getting ready to move. So every, everything is up in the air at this point. Uh, so doing this podcast is a bit of a reprieve from my long, long to-do list. Um, and then also joining us is my friend Ben Stout. Ben, how are you doing? Doing well. Word of advice.
1: Just go ahead and get the biggest U-Haul.
0: Oh, we're getting movers. So I'm, I'm being kind of bougie about this move. Oh, wow. So on this week's Peach Pod, we are going to talk about the latest on negotiations to avoid yet another government shutdown. When President Trump relented on his wall and opened up the government back in January, he and Congress set a February 15th deadline to come up with a longer term funding arrangement for part of the federal government. We'll see if they can do that by Friday. Then it's a new rule in Georgia politics that at least one Metro Atlanta congressional district has to be in campaign mode at all times. That's a new rule. And this week, that's Georgia 7 with Congressman Rob Woodall announcing that he will not seek re-election, And Carolyn Bordeaux, who narrowly lost to Woodall in November, she's jumping back in to try to secure that seat in 2020. And then finally, last week, Washington's newest rock star Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, joined with Senator Ed Markey to introduce the Green New Deal. It's a plan that transcends environmental policy and aims to start a World War II style mobilization to overhaul the nation's economy and combat climate change. And as you can guess, everyone loved it, especially Senator Mitch McConnell. And we're going to tell you why Senator Mitch McConnell is so excited about this bill. Uh, But before we dive in on those topics, there was a couple of news items that dropped late this afternoon that we're going to get more into later. But we wanted to highlight these before we jump into the regular show. Um, So this afternoon, in the Senate, uh, Brian, Governor Brian Kemp had his floor leader, Blake, Senator Blake Tillery, introduce Senate Bill 106, which is the governor's proposal for waivers in the Medicaid program and in the Affordable Care Act. This is Governor Kemp's efforts at addressing rural health care issues and and trying to, I'm sure he would say, expand access to health coverage and, and access to health care in the state of Georgia. Uh, the bill... Authorizes the governor to seek two waivers from the federal government, one in the Medicaid program that would expand Medicaid coverage up to the poverty line, and then a second waiver that would make adjustments to the Affordable Care Act marketplace in the state in an attempt to control health care costs. Guys, this bill just came out this afternoon. So I know we haven't had a long time to digest it. But let's just go around real quick with reactions to the first major move on health care in the Kemp administration. Luke, what was your reaction to the bill?
2: Uh my first reaction was that this is better than nothing and I I can't remember the origin of the quote but I, there's a saying that the way that you know you have a good compromise is that nobody's happy and I I kind of suspect that's where this is this is going.
0: Ben what did you think about this first big push on healthcare? Yeah, I'm going
1: to have to look more into the details on it. I really don't have anything substantive at this point. Uh going to need to actually read the legislation and and get some more back uh background information on it. That being said, um, I know kind of the team that has put this together, uh, Grant Thomas is uh, in charge of health uh, care policy for, for Governor Kemp. He has uh, recently come over from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and um, is, a, is a real rising star uh, for Georgia. And then also uh, one of the floor leaders for the governor. Of course, this bill originated in the Senate and as a result, it was dropped by Senator Blake Tillery. But on the House side, uh, Representative Jody Lott, is an absolute policy wonk and uh and specifically on health care, and I know that she 's uh been working a lot with uh, the administration on this bill, so i'm excited to learn more about the bill i don 't know much about it. I know about the team that has put it together and uh and have a lot of confidence in them, so excited to see learn more about it
2: small world, I was an undergrad with Grant thomas mm. oh there you go yeah
0: um, well yeah, I am interested to see where this goes i'm i'm cautiously optimistic at the beginning, but one of the Uh, big red flags in this bill to me is the fact that the legislation only authorizes what's known as a partial Medicaid expansion. It only allows Medicaid to be expanded up to the poverty line and not to the full amount allowed under the Affordable Care Act. Um, So I am hopeful that some of those details are going to change throughout this process so that Georgia can get the best deal possible for their Medicaid expansion. Uh, But we will watch as that develops and and keep you all up to date as this thing moves through the legislative process, uh, Luke, I know there was another piece of news that you wanted to hit on before we dive in. What what else dropped today in the legislature?
2: Yeah, so actually looking at the House website, it dropped yesterday, but uh, Representative Holcomb uh, tweaking out that the Georgia Voting Rights Act, which is HB two eighty three, has dropped. Uh, I'm very excited about this because this is a piece of legislation that I helped craft and uh, worked on a long time. So I know we're going to talk about it at a later time, but I just wanted to, to highlight that because uh, it's the first piece of legislation that I helped author that, you know, got, got dropped. So it's kind of an exciting day for me.
0: All right, so let's dive in on our first topic this week. So on Monday night, right before President Trump spoke at a rally for his border wall, appropriators in Congress announced a tentative spending agreement aimed at avoiding yet another government shutdown. The deal includes $1.375 billion for 55 miles of border fencing, which is actually less than the amount Trump turned down last year, right before the government shutdown that began in December. And the agreement also places some limits on spending by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Republican negotiators praised the bill, apparently as a way to just move past this discussion. But the president's allies in the media were less optimistic. Sean Hannity panned the bill as a garbage compromise and Laura Ingraham said it was pathetic. So now all eyes are on the president to see if the deal that has been reached between Democrats and Republicans can earn the president's signature all with the future of his top campaign promise still unclear. Luke, do you think that we're going to have another government shutdown at the end of this week?
2: I am highly skeptical that we would. I don't think there's an appetite from anyone on it. And I think even, you know, President Trump is starting to realize that one of his favorite songs to play is his campaign rallies. You can't always get what you want. Uh, you know, it's true for him, too. And I, I, th- I think he's going to take this small victory, you know, say I got some money for the wall, we're gonna keep fighting for the rest of it. And we're gonna find money from other parts of the budget to keep building it and just keep it alive. Because, and you know, this is not a unique thought for me. It's something a lot of other people have said. But it is very true that, you know, Trump wants the issue of the wall far more than he wants the wall itself. And I think his actions throughout these negotiations have made that pretty clear.
0: Ben, what is the view of conservatives on this deal? Do they do they primarily see sort of Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram as the ones giving the best advice to the president? Or are there other views that maybe the president would be wise to take a deal and move on from this discussion?
1: Yeah, I certainly think that, as Luke alluded to earlier, that maybe two sides not being happy is what makes a compromise. In this uh, particular instance, conservatives are not real happy with the offer on the table. But that being said, I it's a it's a lackluster okay for me personally it's like I would like to see more, and I think that even if he takes this, he may come back around and fight for more just because, as we just mentioned, he loves the issue of the wall and so he could kind of continue pushing for more down the road if he felt you know if he felt politically and messaging wise it needed to that needed to be done but um for me, it's just kind of a a lackluster okay
0: the I mean, the other option here for the president, he can take this deal. And then he still has on the table, one of two scenarios that basically result in the same thing. He can either declare a national emergency, which gives him access to moving around unspent funds in different agencies in the executive branch. Um, or he doesn't actually have to declare a national emergency to have what I think is a more limited access to some funds. Uh, there's an emerging emerging consensus among uh, budget writers in the White House and Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney that there is some funding available by shifting money from flood control projects in California and disaster relief funds in also in California and in Puerto Rico and some Department of Defense funds for military construction on military bases Some conservatives, Ben, have raised alarms about the concept of the president declaring a national emergency, not necessarily because that's the worst move in this instance, but because of the precedent that it would set going forward for a Democratic president. Do you see the emergency declaration as a good out for President Trump? Or would you sort of encourage him to find another way to find some money for his wall?
1: I certainly wouldn't be excited to see him make this move. That being said, should he make it, I would understand why. So from a conservative perspective, the unwillingness it has seemed by the Democrats to come and, and provide a reasonable offer, as you said, that even this offer is less than they were uh, he was offered back in December. Um, I would understand why he made it. I wouldn't necessarily be upset with him. But I, if I had the opportunity, I would encourage him not to make that move.
0: Luke, what do you think about the emergency declaration? I mean, this is something a Democratic president could point to in the future, You know, President Obama also pursued executive action of of a much different degree on immigration when he could not get what he wanted out of Congress. Um, What do you think about this option before President Trump now?
2: I think people really are ignoring the obvious way that this whole scenario would play out. There were you know, there there is the threat of a future president, Democrat or Republican trying to do this thing if Trump does declare a national emergency. But what will happen is that he will immediately get sued, a court will immediately tell him to stop doing it, and that is when the real interesting thing will happen of if Trump stops or doesn't stop. I, I think if as far as slam dunks go, bringing this before a court and saying that you're going to declare a state of emergency because this is such a bad thing that you waited six months to declare a state of emergency for, I mean, just any fact finder will be like, this is not an emergency. You cannot allocate these funds this way. There are laws and you are breaking them. Stop doing it. So, I mean, I I just think this is the biggest just nothing burger of this administration filled with nothing burgers.
1: I totally disagree for the recorders to how that would play out. So uh, you would find somebody to bring suit, either somebody uh, who lives on the border. Y- you can find individuals who would have standing. Then they would bring it forward and uh, probably not a Ninth Circuit. People like to say it because conservatives don't like the Ninth Circuit. But you'd probably find a, a judge in California or perhaps even Hawaii uh, that, that would find a stay on uh, on the order. And then, uh, th- then the next question is, of course, is an injunction. Could they stop the building of the wall in the interim? And then if they got that, then it's gonna go up through the courts up to the Supreme Court. And for me, at that perspective, at that point, you have to be hard pressed to believe that the Supreme Court, because what they're gonna weigh is, is the judgment of what is a national emergency. And if they say that the that lower court judge has the precedent to say what is and isn't a national emergency above what the president of the United States says is and isn't a national emergency, then that that that's like an unprecedented move. So I, I think that even if it goes through the court system, it creates a year, maybe a year and a half delay if they don't get it expedited. Well, um, but at the end of the day, the wall gets built that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, courts have been very differential to the president on immigration policy. And, you know, specifically, the the Supreme Court upheld the travel ban that President Trump instituted, um i i think it is a the, the tall... there's a
2: difference here though because you know facts are stubborn things and you can't just declare something an emergency without there being any actual evidence of the emergency being there and while i agree in the abstract if you know president trump declared that there was a state of emergency after a hurricane or after some other event immediately after the event began that's a completely different factual hard circumstance where you can start because i mean it's just like courts are not stupid <laughs> like they understand that the only reason he's declaring an emergency is because he couldn't get congress to do something for him and that if congress had done it he would never have said it was an emergency and so like on that front like this is not a viable path and i agree with ben i did um i did diminish how long it would take because this would go through the courts and it would be uh rather slow but as far as a viable presidential strategy to you know go out and say you know you know 20 years from now when president you know aoc is inaugurated she can't just on day one say i declare a state of national emergency on climate change all funding that I can allocate towards a Green New Deal. I just have done it because I say it is. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, even this Supreme Court is not going to just defer to Trump because this isn't like immigration where he's making a decision about who we let in and who we don't. This is a situation where he is taking money from thing, like from buckets that have been allocated and unilaterally saying they are no longer going to this thing that congress appropriated it to is going to this thing that i the president have unilaterally declared is an emergency based on my feelings and the tv i watch
1: of course that's not what he's going to say but i mean the president there have been um national emergencies declared in our past that have, that have been of suspect level of importance right that that it's been um questionable whether that rose to the level of a national emergency. And at the end of the day, who has the right to say what is and isn't a national emergency? That power right now and that authority has been left to the president. And so for the Supreme Court to make a decision on that would be to take that authority that has been left to the president away from the president and deciding it in this instance would be going to the judge of the lower court. And I just don't think that's going to happen.
2: The problem with that, though, is you're ignoring the, the, the deep truth that is at the core of my theory, which is... An emergency is something that requires immediate action or consequences will happen. And Trump I, has no evidence of that. And the but, the, but the bigger problem is the fact that he's been calling this an emergency for so long that like, if it is such an emergency, why didn't you do something about it? If, if, And that that sort of it's you know it's a fallacy that it proves itself that it's not an emergency because he hasn't declared a state of emergency it's a it's a political emergency and the fact that he has no political capital get this done not a actual emergency and again the other thing i think your analysis is missing is that congress has had an opportunity to allocate money to this project and has repeatedly decided not to do it and the court is not going to just unilaterally give every president from here on out the ability to unilaterally declare emergencies and move money around by themselves.
0: I don't, I'm somewhat skeptical that the court would step in and grant itself the authority to second guess the president on an emergency over a few billion dollars of funding for a wall. I just don't think, you know, if the president was declaring an emergency to do something really extreme that might
2: jurisprudence is a scary thing if you open up the door to it then what's gonna i mean this is one of the things that i i think you guys are really underestimating the conservatism of the supreme court because i do not i do not see that you know the the constitution was formed very coherently in prioritizing the legislature and the ability of the legislature to appropriate funds and since this unlike the other issues deals with trump literally taking money away from what congress said it was going to appropriate it to and having it go towards something else i just don't see that being a a viable path Uh, luke
1: i'm I'm with you on the point of What should be right. So I am. We're on the same page that the that we would like the president not to do this, that this is not the proper way of governing. I'm just saying if it plays out in the courts, we just differ as to how it plays out in the courts.
0: Yeah. And I think I might land closer to where Ben is. I just I I don't know. I don't think I think it is difficult for the court to step in and second guess the president on the definition of a national emergency, even if to a, a reasonable average person, it doesn't look like an emergency.
2: So my- I want to make sure I understand in my, in my hypothetical where, where AOC declares unilaterally that climate change is a national emergency, you think that the Supreme Court would hold that up? Yes,
0: I think so. Yeah, I think I think that there actually is more substantial evidence that climate change might be a national emergency oh, where you lost get me kyle to this <laughs> i know we were doing so good ben i know um, no i
2: i think compromise no one's happy We, <laughs> that, we <didn't. laughs>
0: i think that there is more significant evidence now it, it it's interesting there's more significant evidence that climate change is an emergency but What would probably be on the table for a Democratic president to declare a national emergency over climate change would require a response at a scale much, much larger than anything that Trump is considering on doing with the wall. I mean, Trump cannot turn around and find $5 trillion in different agencies in the budget to build, you know, a 50 foot concrete wall, you know, around not only the border with Mexico and Canada, but on all of our shores, too. I mean, like, he's not claiming to do that. The money that he is getting in this deal is only for 55 miles of wall. And so if you multiply that by 10, maybe he could find 500 money for 500 miles of wall for about $10 billion. But, like, that's just not... Constitutional
2: violations are constitutional violations, no matter how big they are. Like, the Supreme Court's not going to be like, well, you stole one cookie instead of all the cookies in the cookie jar, so we'll let you get them all again. uh, You might
1: be uh, underestimating the political decision-making that goes into the way Roberts decides. I think that Roberts cares about the amount of cookies.
2: I mean, that's very much true, but I think... In this scenario, Roberts would be more likely to side with him not being able to do this based off of his uh, desire to keep the court's opinion, you know, in, in good standing.
1: So far when it comes to big issues, and I'll, I'll leave it here, but so far when it comes to big issues of, of Trump that have gone before the Supreme
2: Court, he's like, what, three for three? I don't know which ones you're counting, so it's it's harder to tell. Uh, I'm, ta- I'm counting travel ban, on,
1: travel ban, transgender. And there was one other one. So, so far, Trump has done well at the at the Supreme Court.
2: And the last thing I'll say on this, and then we can move on, is every single issue that you hit on did not involve money. And I, I think the ability of presidents to move money away from where Congress has appropriated it unilaterally will make them a little more cautious than issues of social issues, effectively. Fair enough.
0: I think if uh, the Supreme Court cared all that much about money, they would have inserted themselves into the dumpster fire that is our appropriations process in Congress a long time ago. Let's move on, though, to the Democrats here. Luke, are you happy with the deal that the Democrats got out of this? I mean, there is money going to something that President Trump can call a wall. And they're, they got what I think is really described as a really modest win on limits on the amount of money that the Department of Homeland Security can spend to house immigrants. Th- they, they got a pretty small victory on that when they maybe had some leverage to get something bigger. Do you think that Democrats should have tried to get more from the president and Republicans in this deal?
2: I hate this like winners and losers conversation that we all want to get into because we all want to play pundits on TV and we're playing ones on podcasts. Like That's
0: why we started our show. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, and so like... Look, Democrats, anyone in government should have one job above all else, which is do what's best for the country, keep the lights on good governance. And unfortunately, Trump is an incredibly unreliable deal maker and an unreliable deal partner. and if you got some if you've gone something that he will say yes to that will prevent the huge problems that we have with a, a shutdown, I think it's the like, morally right thing to do to just like, bite the bullet and let him get a small win so that we don't have the really crappy scenario that we had play out for over a month last time the government got shut down. And I think on that front, it was the, it's the responsible thing to do because this Congress has a bunch of other things it wants to do. Uh, you know, Trump's going to complain about all the investigations.
1: If there is going to be peace and legislation... There cannot be war and investigation.
2: But there's plenty of other legislation they want to look at. There's plenty of other bills they want to pass. There's even some areas where, uh, you know, the Democratic House and Trump probably could work together. And they're not going to get to those places until the government's funded. And they've, like, put this wall thing to rest for a little bit. And so, you know, like, that's, you know, we don't control the whole government. We can take back both houses. And so on that front, you know, uh, we got trump to decrease the amount of money he wanted towards a wall we're getting some money towards things we think is more effective than a wall at uh you know securing the border so yeah uh could we is there a theoretical deal that we could have come to that was better maybe but uh i think the deal that's in front of us is acceptable and you know we uh keep the government open and keep people getting paid and i i think that's better ultimately than dragging this thing out longer and going into another shutdown You hear my
1: lackluster response. You hear Luke's lackluster response. It sounds like what's happening in Washington is compromise.
0: (laughs) Washington is working. Some would say. (laughs) We're all unhappy. Washington works. (laughs) Howard Schultz would probably say Washington is working. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to our second topic for the week. So 2020 has arrived in Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Last week, Congressman Rob Woodall announced that he would not seek another term in that district. And Carolyn Bordeaux, who Woodall bested by less than 500 votes in November, announced that she's taking another shot at that seat. Her announcement was accompanied by endorsements from many prominent Democrats, including Andrew Young, Hank Johnson, John Ossoff, and several Democrats in the legislature. Uh, But she is likely to face a primary challenge for a seat that looks so winnable for Democrats. Uh, Ben, are you worried about Republicans losing the 7th District seat? Oh, yeah, big time. I think that as
1: things stand right now, there is probably a better than not chance that Democrats will take that seat. And I think that Republicans are gonna work really hard to keep it. I think they've got a good shot to keep it. But as things stand right now, I just yeah, I, I think that it that is a very winnable seat for Democrats.
0: Luke, what do you think about uh Carolyn Bordeaux getting back in this race and and showing that she has pretty significant Democratic support, at least at the beginning.
2: Let, let's back up and look at the big picture and then like come down to the question that you're asking. So for election nerds in Georgia, Georgia's seventh was the district that we always talked about. And the John Ossoff race kind of got us all annoyed because the seventh seemed like the holy grail of like if the Democrats were going to take a seat, that was the one they were going to take. So I'm still surprised Lucy McBath won and Bordeaux did not because I really thought that with Woodall being a, you know, like policy nerd, you campaign very hard and a really diverse district. I thought that was a formula that we could beat this representative. Um and I think Lucy McBath's unique campaign and the issues that she brought really, you know, hit her along the way there. So that being said, I think Carolyn Bernardo one would be crazy to not run again based off of how she performed last time because she was very, very close and she was a first time candidate to my knowledge. So I imagine uh, you know, she you know, learned a lot from her race and would probably do a much better job. That being said, uh, the winnability of this race is no longer something that my spreadsheets just tell me, but it's something that, like, other people who have won races and are currently elected is seeing, and I would not be surprised if uh, Brenda Lopez or Sam Park or some other currently elected state representative jumps into this race because, Gwinnett is changing very fast. It's a very diverse district. And I think a representative who has been in that community and has won tough races and Brenda Lopez and Sam Park have both done that, I would be very surprised if one of them don't jump in just because of their record and the just opportunity that is here for a Democrat to win.
0: Ben, are there Republicans that you're looking to to jump into that race and, and try to win that district back or to keep it in there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Hands, I've had several conversations already with individuals that are looking at it. Um, I think that uh, some of the ones that you have to consider, uh, State Senator Renee Unterman, got to be completely honest, does not excite me a whole lot, much at all, actually. Um, but I know she is considering it and she would be heavily funded. And so she would be a, uh, a serious contender. Scott Hilton, representative, former Representative Scott Hilton, was seriously considering it. But um, actually, as of this afternoon, he has accepted an appointment by the governor to be the chairman of the Georgia First Committee and uh, and uh, the Georgians First Committee. And so I think that that would kind of rule him out at this point. I don't know that he will be looking uh, to run for, for this congressional seat while doing that. State Rep. David Clark is considering it, but I don't think that he will actually be jumping in. Um, uh, he is... Um, He's uh, I don't know that his, his career would be able to, but he would be an excellent uh person, I think, to run for that seat. He uh is um ex military, he has a, a great looking family, he's a young guy, pretty dy- dynamic, and so I think that he may look at it. Uh, and then the former represent uh, the former individual who ran against Rob Woodall, Shane Hazel, it sounds like he's gonna run again. Uh, I'll be honest, I thought that he ran a pretty good campaign against. Uh, Representative Woodall when he ran that race. But since he has left that, he has started a podcast that is very libertarian-leaning and as a conservative has really kind of turned me off for a lot of respect that I had for him. So at this point, I think that the the seat is wide open. I actually know of some others that have been mentioned that I'm not allowed to disclose at this point, but um, but I know a lot of individuals are considering it, and I think that
0: you're going to have a good Republican field. Shane Hazel, if you're listening, we should do a collaboration sometime. <laughs> Yeah, I think Renee Unterman, to me, maybe is one of the most interesting Republicans that could jump into this race, especially if you assume that this is a district with a Democratic tilt, because Senator Unterman has suddenly found herself with some distance between her and her own party. After her chairmanship was stripped at the beginning of this legislative session, she has been uh, fairly contentious with Senate leadership, mostly, I think, because of the fact that her chairmanship was stripped, but she was critical of new sexual harassment rules in the in the state Senate. And she uh, is joining Democrats and and all of the women in the chamber in pushing the state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. So assuming that Renee Unterman could get out of a primary, I, I think this is the chance where Republicans could lose this race for themselves by maybe nominating the most conservative person on their ticket uh, in the primary. But if Renee Unterman were to get out of the primary, she would be interesting for the distance that she has with her party, and maybe the independent streak that she could somewhat demonstrate, uh, depending on her moves in this legislative session. Luke, is there is there a path for a Republican to win this seat in your view?
2: Absolutely. I think the consequence of us winning the Georgia 6th district is, you know, it's it's sort of shook Republicans out of their complacency that like, oh, Democrats actually can win races. And so, I mean, I think that's why we saw Brandon Beach, a state senator, announced against uh, Lucy McBath this early. And I think uh, this, you know, I think honestly, it's, part of the reason that Rob Woodall announced so early that he's not going to run for re-election and being a lame duck for practically two years, which is fine. I mean, he can, you know, represent the district just fine and do his job. And I, I'm not criticizing him on that at all. Um, it's just like, it's because I think Republicans and Democrats both feel that it will take them two years to win or lose this race and that people are going to get into it pretty shortly and, and it's going to be a draw, you know, drawn out dogfight until the end. Um, and I'm just, I'm just curious cause I, I suspect there will be a lot of former representatives who, and senators who ran for statewide office last cycle and didn't win jumping into this race on the Republican side. That would be, that's my prediction because a lot of them live in this district.
1: Yeah. A big fish in that, uh, that would fit that court, uh, category would be former state Senator and Senate pro Tim, David Schaefer. He lives in the district. Uh, he has been in Gwinnett County for a long time. Uh, of course he, he lost, uh, the Lieutenant governorship by a razor thin margin, um, and, and almost won it uh, straight up in the primary. And so, um, he would be one that that could consider it. I personally would be surprised if he decided to do it, but if he did, he would definitely be a a formidable candidate.
0: Speaker Ralston had some comments this morning that I thought were relevant to the discussion in the 7th District, the discussion in the 6th District, and redistricting uh, that's going to take place after the 2020 elections. Um, He basically admitted what we all know, which is that whoever... If one party could gain one party control over the redistricting process in 2020, that party could control state politics for a decade. I I think we've seen this play out, particularly over this last decade.
2: And that's why we need the Georgia Voting Rights Act to prevent (laughs) politicians from controlling things based off of who won in a redistricting cycle.
0: Well, that's that's pretty much my question is, what did y'all make of that? admission of of something we all already knew that this race, the sixth district race in, in the story of 2020 in Georgia is really going to be about who, well, really, to me, it's going to be about if Democrats can have any say in redistricting, or if they can win enough seats, to make it difficult for Republicans to draw those maps, if they if they can't, for instance, secure a majority in the House and and have a seat at the table for the redrawing of the maps. What did you make of, of Speaker Ralston's comments and and how this will all play out uh, going forward?
1: Well, I actually had the opportunity to be with Speaker Ralston this evening. And this uh, very topic came up. In fact, uh, when addressing congressional seats, uh, Speaker Ralston is being told that right now we are projected to gain an additional congressional seat which is news to me. In all of the uh, meetings I've had the opportunity to be in regarding this issue, I've been told that uh, Republicans or that Georgia was not going to get another congressional seat. Um, it sounds like Speaker Austin is planning on us having another one, which of course only bumps up the importance of redistricting. Um, but like you said, he we already knew that this was the case. I don't see any way in which on top of the additional seats that Democrats just gained, and, and all of those will be up for grabs, and maybe one or two of those could come back to Republicans. Uh, in addition to that, how many more seats they would need to gain? I just don't see that happening in the next election cycle. And so um, I'd be very surprised if Republicans don't control that uh, redistricting, redistricting process. And I think that they will do it to benefit their favor, especially if we get a new congressional seat. They'll make sure that one goes to the GOP and will probably shore up the 7th a little bit and uh and maybe even put the 6 in a little bit more of a contest or a little bit more leaning uh republican and uh and to be completely honest I don't really have a problem with that uh to to the victors go the
0: spoils. Like what do you make of all that?
2: First I'll address this from the the Dagonerg and me. Uh arithmetic is very stubborn and I think the uh, GOP should be afraid of getting another seat because the population of Georgia has been growing and not in the places that the Republican party would like it to grow. And this is not going to be another Joey Heiss seat. This is going to be it. They're going to have to throw one to the Democrats probably to keep uh, keep most of the seats as reg as they're going to want to keep them uh, because the population is not growing in my beloved Camden County at the same rate as it is in my my new home of Athens and Atlanta and the areas where Democrats are doing better and better and the parts of the state where Republicans do well are shrinking or not growing at the same rate as the metropolitan areas so on that front if we do get another seat, I would not be surprised if they just turn the sixth district, or they renumber it so that the the uh, number, you know, the sixth district can remain uh, a Republican district since it has a long history with Johnny Isaacson and Newt Gingrich being from there. But regardless, I digress. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna have to give the Democrats another seat probably if they want to keep the other seats safe. Uh, that's my prediction there, um, just due to math. Yeah, let, uh, let's hey, walk through the numbers real
1: quick. Minus getting the new seat, so minus getting the new seat, uh, it would be very easy to keep and shore up the two seats that are existing. Uh, uh, right now, you can look at the sixth I, district. It's 50 I wouldn't say
2: very easy, but it's possible.
1: It's very yeah. Well, think about it. The sixth district butts up, and for Scythe, it butts up to the uh, to the ninth district. The is sist- the Sixth district is about fifty-fifty right now, and the ninth district is seventy-three percent GOP. So it would be pretty easy to give maybe the seventh district instead of having some of that, uh, some of that north Forsyth, Give it, um, give it some Gwinnett, and then uh, and then move the sixth district up into more of Forsyth. And and with that seventy-three percent, there's more than enough to share the ninth. With the six, and then moving over into the seventh district, uh, the tenth district, which is adjacent, is a pl- is a plus sixty five percent Republican. And if you consider that a fifty and fifty percent, you could move uh, you could move Gwinnett into the Dekilo and receive all of Gwinnett, which is what is not in the seventh of Gwinnett is the GOP votes, and even move into further into the tenth district to receive those GOP votes. With that tenth district moving elsewhere, uh, perhaps more into Richmond County or more into uh, more into Macon. To do it. So the numbers are definitely there as it stands without a new seat to shore up both districts uh, as solidly GOP with a redistrict. Adding in a new district changes a lot, and and I really haven't looked at it uh,
2: for that. Now you see, dear listener, this is why I worked on the Georgia Voting Rights Act, so that we could just have an independent commission draw all of these things. And rather than who, you know, which which county should go with which so that we can elect Republicans or Democrats, we can just say, like, who has shared interests and what's a continuous county and what's easy to campaigning and represent, you know, similar communities of interest. That sounds much better than everything Ben just said.
1: Never heard about that act whenever Democrats were in power for 100 years.
2: Uh, you know, 1965 Voting Rights Act, Linda Johnson? That's the one. Yeah, that's not...
1: A, that's not a state act. B, obviously it didn't do all you wanted it to do because we're still here.
2: Yeah, that's a redistricting issue, though. Not, you know... <laughs> all I'm saying is Republicans
1: got to sit and watch the Democrats redistrict for 100 years. Republicans have been in the majority for, like, what, like 10 years, 12 years now? And now all of a sudden we need to have a commission on this.
2: I I would be fine with... Uh, every state having it. I I am equal opportunity player. This is a good governance issue for me. Uh, I don't if if you told me tomorrow that uh, if this independent commission would keep Republicans in power, I would still do it.
1: I think it's just a different philosophy on a person. But that's fine.
0: The stakes of the 2020 elections in Georgia are going to be very high. You know, Georgia may be a battleground state in the presidential race. And depending on how close that race is and how much Democrats can make gains in the Midwest. Southern states like Georgia may actually be really key to Democrats defeating Trump. The whoever the Democrat that runs against David Perdue is, right now we think it may be Stacey Abrams, but we'll see. Um, That person may also be the 51st Democratic senator. Uh, because it's going to be a couple of easy flips, I think, for Democrats in a in a presidential year. But to get closer to taking that majority, a state like Georgia or a state like North Carolina is going to be right in the mix. And then this discussion of redistricting is also going to hang over all of the state races, the local races, or the, the state level legislative races and these congressional district races, uh, because it would be harder for Republicans should they maintain control of or should Democrats take the seventh and keep the sixth, you know, it becomes an interesting redistricting game for them, even if they control all of the levers of power here in the state level. All right, so let's move on to our final topic of the week. Um, So last week, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey introduced a resolution uh, that they are calling the Green New Deal. And basically, this is a sort of a broad outline of their Plan to tackle climate change. But the bill goes significantly beyond just issues that address things like CO2 in the atmosphere and the structure of our energy industries and all of our emitting industries. The bill gets into what is basically a broad remake of the entire national economy. It deals with updating basically all of the buildings in the country to improve their energy efficiency. And it tries to center a discussion on communities of lower and moderate income people who have been impacted by the growth and the sustainability of the fossil fuel industry in this country. Republicans, I think, they aren't scared, at least as of right now, they aren't shocked. Uh, They seem kind of giddy at the prospect that Democrats would be focusing on what they view as such a outlandish proposal, uh, so much so that Senator Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate wants to bring the resolution up for a vote in the Senate, even though it's probably not going to come up for a vote in the democratic controlled house. Ben, what was your reaction to Democrats putting out such a massive proposal, um, and Republican reactions of being kind of excited to see this on the agenda?
1: Yeah. When the, uh, when the bill is put out, um, uh, my reaction was similar to that of President Trump's when asked by a reporter if AOC's comments that the president was, I believe, either a bigot or racist or something like that, if he had a response, he said, "What? What? What did she say?" And they repeated it, and he said, "Who cares?" And I thought it was a great response. Who cares that? They, I mean, this is just the most outlandish uh, p- bill that that could be put out there. It eliminates travel uh, via air. It uh, would require for each building in America to be rebuilt. I mean, it's just—it's an absolute. Now, now I will say, let's let's put it on the flip side, so you know what this look. Like. This would look like Republicans putting forward a bill that says that we are going to get rid of the EPA, we're going to get rid of the Department of Education, we're going to slash the federal government's budget by like thirty or forty percent, we're going to outlaw abortion nationwide, and we're going to do it all in you know whatever ten years. And if, if if a representative put that all somehow in a bill and put it out there, the reaction that the left would have and the reaction that those on the right would have as far as how to treat this bill in its seriousness is similar to what's going on in Washington now.
0: To be clear, it doesn't specifically eliminate air travel, but but getting at reducing emissions from air travel is, is certainly a big key to this proposal. Luke, Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Markey, they... Package a lot of things into this bill. This isn't just issues that deal with climate. It really is a World War II style mobilization of the economy and a remake of the economy that significantly deprioritizes corporate interests in favor of the interests of working people and you know, of people who have been impacted by pollution caused by the fossil fuel industry. Um, that is how they would describe the aims of this bill, its supporters, that's how they would describe it. What do you think about packaging all of these things into this ginormous aspirational uh, resolution?
2: So contrary to the normal dialogue about policy in the United States, every single time Republicans get into power, they push through a bill that is as big as this in the opposite direction. And that is incredibly huge tax cuts. Because by passing incredibly huge tax cuts, you are saying that we are not going to do things like this, and we're not going to have the government at the scale that this legislation would want. Now, that being said, you can think that's a good or bad thing. I think it's a bad thing a lot of the times. Uh and I think the other thing that is equally important is Pretty much nobody but the president of the United States and some uh, Republicans on the far right and probably Ben think that climate change is not a major issue, a major problem that will have dire economic consequences unless we do something about it. And frankly, at this point, not connecting climate change, combating measures with a job program is probably the wrong way to do it, because unlike the litany of Republican issues packed into one bill, the consequences of climate change are going to have severe economic consequences. And you can you know put your head in the sand and say, la, 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 as much as you want, but eventually it's going to happen. It's going to be undeniable and it's already started. So on that front, if you accept that climate change is real, which many, 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 many people do and very few people don't, if that is your operating premise is that Climate change is real, and we gotta do something about it. Tacking on the job part is not like tacking it on; it's actually addressing the issue. Because to combat the consequences of climate change at the rate and scale that needs to be done to prevent situations like where you have to stop flying planes because uh, emissions have not been reduced significantly enough, you have to have a project on a scale that can reduce emissions in other areas. And that's going to take a lot of people working on solar panels, working on wind energy, water energy, all these, all this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. I, I want to jump in here and just uh, make sure we understand that the, this proposed bill and equating it with the big laws that the Republicans have passed. I see tax reform is the most outlandish comparison I've ever heard of. So tax reform, updated the tax code for the first time in 30 years, and had a small, um, a small change in how much people were paying, whether that was corporations or businesses. It obviously has done a credible for the economy, But nevertheless, it really just changed our tax code. It wasn't a fundamental change of the tax code. We didn't go to a... um...
2: To be fair, I was referencing every Republican administration since Reagan, not just the most recent one.
1: Right, but I'm just saying like the bills that they have done, and you kind of cited tax bills though, but the bills that they have done have been larger bills, but nothing comes close to the at minimum $6.6 trillion a year that it would take to pay for this. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> equating it to anything that Republicans have ever done is just absolute nonsense.
0: Um, Ben, I am curious, though. Is there an environment where Republicans are going to see a political upside into taking environmental issues more seriously? I mean, Republicans don't totally have their heads in the sand. Right now, uh, state legislators on the coast are fighting attempts to expand offshore drilling off of the coast of Georgia. And uh, new Florida governor Ron DeSantis, who uh, many of us may remember, made an ad where he taught his baby to build the wall and read uh, night night stories to his baby from Trump's book, um, actually received plaudits and praise from uh, papers in Miami about an effort to improve the environment in the Everglades. I mean, even going back to one of our nation's finest presidents, Richard Milhouse Nixon, he is responsible for some of the most expansive environment environmental regulations that are out there. This is not an issue that Republicans in some scales or in some instances bury their heads in the sand about, but the broader, the biggest discussion on uh, what scientists would say is the most catastrophic environmental outcomes that await. Our country and this globe they 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 don 't really seem to engage in any kind of substantive way. Um, do you think that that calculus is ever going to change for republicans?
1: Let me say this: I think it is a fundamental understanding among conservatives as far right as you want to go that we need to take care of our of our soil water air i mean it is a basic i mean so many Republicans uh, that grew up in rural Georgia, uh, one of the first things you learn is about farming and fishing and hunting. And, and they want to take in and caring for your land and, and caring for your streams. And I don't think that's lost when they grow up. What I think happens is, is that when the left says that the climate is changing, which I think that we can all see the, uh, the evidence of. And then they say, but we can automatically prove that that uh, climate change is due to human activity I don't believe that 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 science is conclusive. And then when they take that inconclusive science and then translate it to we want to take away jobs, uh, restrict your ability to do business in certain areas, uh, that's where you run into a problem with Republicans. I think that Republicans have in Georgia and will continue to advance the advance efforts for clean water, clean air and uh, and a sustainable environment. But I don't think that that restricting commerce to an uh, to an unhealthy degree, I don't think that that you're going to see that anytime soon.
0: Luke, I think one of the goals for Democrats in this time is to use their House majority as a lever to lay out their agenda for what they would do if you were to, you were to elect a Democratic president in 2020 and a Democratic Senate. This bill it's it's a massive undertaking and it, it lacks a lot of details. It lacks any details about how it would be paid for. Um, and I, you can't really, it it is difficult to take this bill and even with your own preferences, back it out into some sort of a workable piece of legislation. Um, and that I think is deliberate in some senses and that a lot of the details of this still need to be worked out. But do you think that this is a good first offer for, we get to a democratic majority in 2021 with a democratic president? We have, you know, maybe only two years to act in the unified democratic control. Is this a good first salvo to setting up that action? After the 2020 elections? Should they go Democrats way?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is it's not a bill, it's an HR, it is a resolution declaring, you know, what the priorities of the Democratic Party are. And I think, since this does not have a chance of passing in this Congress, and it's going to require a lot more resources and time to look into it. I think it's a useful thing to temperature test the Congress and see where they stand on these issues, see who supports it, and start working out the details. Because, you know, I, I want to be very clear, like, if we were in, you know, a different scenario and, like, this is actually something that would pass, the, the resolution placed in front of us would be entirely inadequate. But it's you know that's not what we're looking at. This is a scenario where this is a value statement of the goals that we're going to be pushing for. In the same way that you know any party says like you know we want to lower taxes or we want to legalize gay marriage or we want to do X, Y, or Z. Democrats are saying we want to do these things and we want to do it on this scale and we have time to figure it out. And so uh, I think getting us to the point where we are now, where we can get people on the record saying they support it or not will support uh not only people in government but think tanks and outside left wing groups to start working on this and try to come up with a solution so that if we, you know, do uh have control of all three branches of government come twenty twenty one, then, you know, we we aren't starting off from scratch. And I think that's something the Republican Party has been much better at than the Democratic Party. I think seeing us take those affirmative steps to try to build a consensus for our proposal before we get elected uh, is, is a good idea instead of having to try to start from scratch every time, which it seems like you know, President Obama had to do with a with the Affordable Care Act, and uh, you know, Bill Clinton had to try to do with the you know Clinton Care or whatever they had named that bill. I can't remember.
1: Quickly, as an individual who is with a party that was recently in the minority and kind of made some of these bold steps and then gotten the majority, and then they weren't going to happen. See how many times the Republicans. Voted to completely repeal the uh, Af- Affordable Care Act, and then when in power, how that was never going to happen. Uh, similar situation here in that they can present this, but that's a a luxury of of being in a situation where it would never pass. Um, get into controlling all three chambers, and the the Democrat leadership would never see it, let this see the light of day.
2: I th- I, I think there's a, a key difference here, though, in the sense that this is trying to propose policy rather than repeal policy and that it's a political statement that there's middle ground you know you can do a small green new deal and you can't really do a small repeal of obamacare because it was a very intricate system that you know you need all three legs of the system for it to work whereas with a green new deal i mean you you don't have to do it to this scale to still do something worthwhile that most democrats if not all democrats would support So I I, I agree. I agree with you that, you know, day one, uh, you know, like January 21st, 2020, like we're not going to see a Green New Deal this size. But I would be pretty shocked if you got to a point where there were, you know, the Democrats control all of Congress and the presidency that if something that would not qualify as a small Green New Deal did not happen, that would surprise me.
1: Uh, Kyle, th- this whole hypothetical of Democrats controlling everything in twenty twenty. Uh, let's can we move on? I, it's not a it's not a fun thought.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Uh, y- you you should pray for the Senate to save you. Um, <laughs> pray that Mitch McConnell doesn't well, it's lose all good his own election. Whenever
1: Trump wins re election, will be good anyways. <laughs>
0: um, I you know I Luke I would push back a little bit on. I actually think you may end up having to pursue something of this scale. I don't know. I mean, a lot of this is going to depend on how the presidential primary plays out. And if the conversation among Democrats about who they want to run for president in 2020, centers on a person who is going to bring big ideas into the mix, or whether it centers on different conversations about electability, who's the best to beat Trump, whether or not, there is an obligation to put forward a female candidate. If the sort of Bernie Sanders style conversation does come to dominate the Democratic presidential primary, it is going to feel really empty to Democratic voters to go through all this to beat Trump, and then to come up with an environmental bill in 2021 or 2022. That includes tax credits for solar panels and a carbon tax. Like, I just don't feel like Democrats, with how quickly the primary candidates are rallying, or how quickly most of them are rallying around things like Medicare for all, a lot of them have come out in support of Green New Deal without even really seeing the details. Um, I just think it's going to be difficult, given the energy in the party and how a lot of the energy feels like it's on the furthest left, to scale down these ambitions, given that a carbon tax and tax credits for solar panels and tax credits for electric cars, those steps, no, no credible science is going to turn around and say medium sized steps like that are going to make a significant dent in the damage that would be caused by climate change.
2: I would say that what you just laid out though is not medium steps. I would say those are like very, very small steps. And I think again, this is a new proposal and we you know, we've had it for a couple of days. I suspect there will be some middle ground between the very small things that you just mentioned and the very large things that the Green New Deal proposes that could actually get done. Because at the end of the day, there's a major difference between recent Democratic administrations and recent Republican administrations in that Democratic administrations want to get something done. And if their option is, you know, I I would be shocked if they don't come out of the gate proposing the Green New Deal and they don't drop a bill that is the Green New Deal. But at the end of the day, even if the very unlikely scenario of Democrats taking back all three houses in 2020, because the Senate is very, very tough, Barring Trump declaring himself, you know, like the like Putin's best friend and like trying to sell Alaska to Russia and the Republican Party going along with that and the economy crashes. I don't think we're going to get to 60 seats in the Senate. So unless the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, which they very well could, we're going to need some Republican votes to get it done. I suspected that they will have to compromise some or, you know, get rid of the filibuster if they if they take back both seats. But either way, I would be surprised if if the two options are do the full new green deal or do nothing, that some middle solution is not what gets done.
1: Just as an aside, before we wrap up, uh, one of the exciting things that happened yesterday was Governor Kemp announced. Uh, uh, the members in the new uh, portion of his administration, which is going to be the Georgians' first commission. And uh, basically what this is going to be is going to be a committee with uh, the executive director being Scott Hilton, a former state rep who has thought about for the, uh, running for the 7th district, but I think will be focused uh, as the executive director uh, of, uh, of this committee. But the idea is uh, for this committee to look at ways to cut government red tape slash regulations spur innovation uh, all with uh, the governor's goal of being the number one state for small businesses. Of course, that was his big tagline on the com- uh, campaign trail—not just number one state to do business, but number one state for small businesses. Uh, you can look up the list online. It has some great uh, business leaders from around the state. Uh, but in the way of Georgia politics, a uh, an interesting new aspect of the George of the of the Brian Kemp administration coming online.
0: Well, President Ocasio Cortez's Green New Deal would deliver so much red tape for. Uh brian kemp to take at with his chainsaw y'all tease all right well i think we are going to leave that there uh, for the week um so we will be back with another episode of peach pod next week but until then take care guys bye guys that's our show for the week if you like what you heard share the show with a friend and go over to itunes and give us a rating or a review it really helps other people find our show We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.